I think that it's short-sighted to view all your marketing through the, the, the concept of a direct attribution. It's very short-sighted. I, I, am, I am very anti-direct attribution in, in big-scale marketing. Scaling up your business requires you to rethink everything. How you hire, how you lead, and yes, how you market. If you were to look at our cost of acquisition for TV or our cost of acquisition for radio or our cost of acquisition for billboards, you would say it's a monumental failure. You would actually conclude that because how can you be paying $10,000 to acquire a case? Well, the reason is because if you take the approach that that person is going to turn into three clients, then you know you're not paying $10,000 for a case, you're paying $10,000 for three cases. You're listening to Personal Injury Mastermind, the show where elite personal injury attorneys and leading edge marketers give you exclusive access to growth strategies for your firm. If there's someone who knows how to scale a business, it's Luis Scott. In two and a half years, he and his partner, Seth Bader, have grown their firm, Bader Scott Injury Lawyers, by 700% from 5 million to 40 million and went from 25 employees to over 150. He's also the co-founder of Eight Figure Firm, a consultant to help law firms reach their full potential. I'm your host, Chris Dreyer, founder and CEO of Rankings.io. We help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings with search engine optimization. An important first step for any lawyer is to really understand the people around them. So let's get to know our guest. Here's Louise Scott, managing partner and COO of Bader Scott and co-founder of Eight Figure Firm. Probably when I was about six years old, my, my dad always told me that uh, I was very argumentative and uh, he thought I was uh, either going to be a comedian or a lawyer. So I, I think he just planted that seed when I was really young. And I think over time, I just kind of developed this desire, like maybe this is what I'm supposed to be as a lawyer. So that's kind of where it came from. Yeah. So you're, you're trying to win those arguments. You're a good negotiator. That, that, that comes in really handy for business too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. You know, I, I've read, I've done a lot of research and, and you've described yourself as like a serial entrepreneur. What sparked your interest on the business side of this practice and, and you know, and, and basically what you're doing? I've always been very entrepreneur in nature. I mean, I remember my first job was actually working at home. And uh, I, I told my parents, I will cut the grass. I will wash the cars. I will fold and do laundry. I will iron all the clothes. I will, you know, be your dry cleaning. I'll do all those things. And uh, you can pay me $20 a week. Like, I, I mean, I, I thought I was rolling in the money. I was a young little kid. I remember going to the grocery store for my grandmother and she would pay me a dollar to ride my bicycle to the grocery store and bring back milk. And uh, I just always had this desire to have a business where I could create income. And so naturally, being a lawyer, I kind of decided I wanted to be an entrepreneurial type of lawyer. I wanted to be somebody who ran a business more than being you know, on the legal side of it. And we need great lawyers and we need people who uh, are, are really good at what they, what they do for people in our society, in our communities. I just knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do. What I wanted to do was actually lead a team of lawyers to help our community. And so that just came from an early age, just, just really kind of being a hustler as a little kid, uh, trying to make an extra dollar. I love the hustle. I love it. it yeah. It's so nice to hear those entrepreneurial backgrounds. And, you know, I, I also heard that you know, you've spoken in the fact that, that you were actually in an auto accident and you've kind of experienced the whole legal process. Did that kind of change? Have you, you know, was that during the time you were with Bader Scott? Did you go and look at, at kind of your processes to kind of 
tweak them, so to speak, to your experience? Um, no, I, that, that accident happened actually a long time ago. But what it was very interesting was what I felt when I was involved in the accident, despite the fact that I was helping people who were involved in accidents. And I did not really anticipate that, that experience. I didn't anticipate feeling that way. When I was involved in the accident, I immediately felt fear. I immediately felt concern. I immediately felt disoriented. I immediately was like, what do I do next? And so here I am, somebody who helps people in personal injury cases. I get in an accident. I'm like, well, what do I do? How do I call the insurance? Like, do I do it myself? Do I, you know, get somebody on, on the team to do it? And so uh, I, I realized if even an experienced legal practitioner is going to be feeling these things in the midst of an accident, imagine what our clients feel. And that really changed my perspective on how we communicate. And that's why I think it's so important that we never lose sight of the fact that whether this person has been in a one accident or 10 accidents, hopefully not 10 accidents, but whether they've been in one or 10, that there's still some sense of fear about the process and about what happens next and about their future. And we have to be very sensitive to that fear. I think personally, that's a huge strength. It's mm -hmm. everyone's focused so much on the hard skills and the soft skills are just so much more valuable now. And that, that brings a unique perspective that you can apply when you're looking at things since you've been on the other end. So that's, that's great. You know, we had Seth on previously on one of the earlier episodes and he described himself as like a, a, a very visionary, more focused on right. kind of the biz dev side too. And, and you've came on and focused a lot. And I know your role shifted a ton and you're doing a mm -hmm. ton of things on operations. And, and I read, I remember I was on Facebook and Seth posted something like, I think it was earlier this year that you guys were hiring like 60 people or something crazy. And within 2.5 years of you guys joining, you're, you went from 25 to 150 people. Tell me about that explosive growth. Like, how did you like put it together? Like, oh, we're going to forecast and hire this amount of people. Like, like, tell me about that experience. Well, everything starts with the beginning of what I would consider your business funnel. And the beginning of your business funnel is actually your marketing. And when, when you know what your marketing is going to do, you can kind of anticipate what kind of employment needs you're going to need. And that's what I was really good at doing is, is anticipating what we needed. And when I realized, hey, we're going to spend this amount of dollars in marketing and our cost of acquisition is this, and therefore we're going to generate this. Uh, number of clients, and we're only settling this number, uh, we're going to need to hire a lot of people. So, you know, in our situation, uh, we were we were resolving around 200 cases a month, but we were bringing 400 plus cases a month. And wow. well, if your net new is 200, 225 cases a month, you're going to have an employment issue, right? And so I knew that we were going to need a lot of people. And so I put in my plan, we're going to hire three in January, February, I'm making these numbers up, but like, that's how the plan was put together. We're going to hire three this month, three this month, three this month, three this month. This is what we need. And not only do we need employees, we need leadership. We need managers. We need mid-level managers. We need people who can train. We need trainers. We need auditors to check on, 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 on the files, you know, trust but verify kind of situation. And that's how we put it together. And when I teach people to, to scale their business, I teach them to scale by looking at what their marketing is going to do and then determine uh they, they have to determine how many people they're going to need in the future 
there's so much to unpack there. And I kind of want to break it down even a little further. The, the first thing that you just said out of the gate, I mean, that utilization, those guys, they were probably just stretched to the, their maximum capacity. Right. And so you're getting a ton out of those individuals, but probably maybe some burnouts and things like that. You know, when you, you when you went in and you know, like, hey, we got to fill the employment pipeline here. You know, let's break that down. What were like a few things? Did you start, did you already have an HR manager, an HR generalist or someone in that role to kind of help with the roles and responsibilities, getting the listings out? Like how did, how did kind of that early process go of? I think when you, when you have 25 employees, it's very, you know, rare to find some sort of full HR team or even an HR manager. We had somebody who knew HR and we started using and relying on them to help us. I actually hired uh, 86 people myself personally in the first year. And so I did a lot of the hiring. I knew what I was looking for. I knew the type of person I was looking for. Uh, many of those people are still here. Uh, we had a hiring class in October of 2018. We hired eight people, October of 2018. Seven of the eight are still here. So now that we're three years in, the eighth person actually just happened to leave us so like a couple of weeks ago. So they, they made it three years, which is an incredible win in employment, as, as you may know, or maybe some of the people in the audience know, uh, most employees stay only 10 months on the job. So having, you know, 40% of our workforce here two years or more is actually an incredible win for the business. But we didn't have an HR team. I had to do a lot of the hiring myself. What I recommend is that if you're at 25, you have somebody who knows HR, 35, you have somebody who's part-time and by 50, you should have somebody full-time in HR working for you and helping you recruit, especially if you know you're going to be scaling. And that's the thing. It's what kind of business are you trying to create? If you're trying to create a smaller business that, that doesn't require a lot of employees, you may not need HR at that point. But if you're trying to scale your business and go from 25 to 50 employees, 50 to 100, 100 to 200, you need to make sure that you have the right people in the right seat to make to make that a reality. Bader Scott has experienced incredible growth in a relatively short time. With so many people coming on board, I wanted to know how they've adapted their organizational structure to make sure everyone has what they need to succeed. So there's a couple of things. First of all, there's the way that we manage and then there's, there's the way that cases flow and they don't actually work the same in our company. The way that we manage is, is we have obviously Seth and myself who lead the four major parts of the business, marketing operations, legal and finance. And then from there, we have a leadership team and we have 11 leaders who head up different departments, HR facilities, personal injury, legal assistance, workers' comp legal assistance, um, personal injury lawyers, workers' comp lawyers. And we have these leaders client experience, uh, onboarding, advocates, marketing, who lead and sit around the table every single week as we strategize our growth and our team. From those 11 people, we then have captains. We have about 30 captains who lead another subset of about five people, five to seven people. So you have 11 who are leading 30 and 30 who are leading another five each. And so that's how we organize our, our business. The lawyers are organized in a similar fashion where there's leadership, there's captains in, in the legal ranks, and every captain oversees five, five lawyers. That's how we manage. And there's three components to that management structure. There's group meetings. So we call them like department meetings. There's one-on-one -on -one meetings, which is figuring out the development, the direction, the support that the person needs to continue to grow in their, in their role. And then there's quarterly meetings where we meet as an entire leadership group to discuss high-level initiatives for the quarter. 
that's the management. The way the case functions is much different because the case, uh, we have departments that, that manage e individual parts of the case, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're the own, their own department. They still fall into, let's say, the personal injury department uh, who's managed by the personal injury lead and then ultimately by us. I like a ton of that. So you're, you're, first of all, you don't have too many direct reports. You're kind of managing that very, very, I mean, it's a, a great way to do it because, you know, it gets too, when the span of control gets too wide, you know, people don't get enough touch points. It kind of gets hard right. to manage. And I think that's really intriguing. And thank you for sharing that, you know, kind of unveiling the curtain a little bit, but I was really in, intrigued. And like, when you get to the size that your firm's at, it's, a lot of times it's an HR, it's, it's a people, it really becomes really people focused. Yep, absolutely. I mean, at this level, I don't even, I, I don't, uh, it's not that I don't consider myself a lawyer, but when I, somebody introduces, you know, when I introduce myself to people, I generally say uh, I'm a business owner. I don't even say I'm a lawyer at this point because I'm in the, I'm in the business of, of, of people at this point. And so very people centric, very leadership centric, and we're much more focused on the development of of what I consider my client, which is our employees. Fantastic. You treat your employees right. What's the quote? You treat them right, then they're going to treat the customers right. And let's let's talk about eight-figure firm consulting. You know, Bader Scott had incredible growth, 700% within two and a half years. I mean, that's just, yeah. that's insane. That's amazing. And now you founded eight-figure firm. It helps that's lawyers right. scale their practices and create businesses out of their firms. First of all, you know, what led you to share your growth secrets with others you know, because you've, you've created this system that works and now you're, now you're giving it away. The, it, I get that question a lot, by the way. And it really came from something that I realized I had in my heart for a really long time. I remember somebody asking the question, what would you do if you had all the money in the world? And I remember thinking, I said that I would be a teacher, but guess what? Teachers don't get paid a lot of money. And so when I got to the point where our firm had grown to a point where I could make decisions that I wanted to make about my life, I immediately started thinking, how can I teach? How can I teach? And there was a subject that I knew, and that was growing a business. Um, outside of Bader Scott, I had already taken three other firms to seven-figure status. And so I knew that I, I had kind of a recipe. And so I sat down and I wrote a book called The Nine Principles of Exponential Growth the eight-figure law firm. And I identified kind of the 10 essentials that it takes to really scale your business. And that's kind of where it came from. That's where I, where I, why I decided to do it. I just had a love for teaching. I knew that I had a, a product um, that could help a lot of people. And because I had a personal vision statement of leading a life of significance, I knew that this was a way that I could be significant in not just in my local community, but also around the country. Unlike Luis, many lawyers don't have an entrepreneurial background when they start their own firm. They've gotten to where they are by being great lawyers and technicians of their craft, but they don't know how to transition into running a business. I asked Luis about the obstacles that law firm owners face and how they can overcome them. Yeah, the biggest obstacle is that many times technicians believe that they're better than anyone else that they can hire. That's the biggest obstacle. It's a mental block. You get this a lot in, in, in the legal industry. I hear a lot of lawyers who say, I can't let go of the legal work because no one will do it like I do it. Despite the fact that there are a million lawyers in the country, and despite the fact that there's only one of you, and there's a million other lawyers in the country, somehow 
this lawyer believes that they're the only one that can provide this product to the client. And so what I always do is I turn them to an interview that, that Bill Gates had when he was scaling his business. And he talked about how he was the best programmer. But what he realized is that no matter how good he was, a thousand programmers programming at 80% of his capacity would beat him every single time. And there's an actual interview. You can find that online. And that's what I tell people is you may be the best lawyer, but 10 lawyers at 80% will run circles around you. So you got to get out of that mental. I think that's the number one barrier is getting out of the mental space that you're the only person that can do your work. The second thing is realizing that if you don't move into the, the, the entrepreneur space and building the business space with some sense of intentionality, what you've really done is create a job for yourself. If you are a law firm owner and you are required to be there day in and day out for it to function, you don't have a business, you have a job. And if you want to have a business, the business has to function without your physical presence. And so that realization has to happen right at the same time that you're realizing that 10 of 80% can get better than one of 100%. Yeah, I've, I've heard that a few other like sayings on that where you're basically you want to move from mandatory to needed to optional. Mm -hmm. It's a great progression. I think the the other quote, and I, I haven't heard the Bill Gates one, so I'm definitely going to want to watch that after our interview here is I've heard, I think Rockefeller said something like you would rather be paid 1% by every employee than hundred percent of his own efforts. That's right. That's what he said. Yeah. Um, you know, so you talk a lot too about strategic planning, right? There's a plan right? You, you went out, you, you saw that you needed to fill these cases, right? You, you had utilization capacity, you needed to add more bodies to help, you know, with the pipeline. So, you know, when, when firms are looking at scaling, you know, where does the strategic planning come into place? Um, how does the eight figure model kind of uh, help with that aspect? Yeah. So the, the, the eight figure model is all about intentionality. I actually have a presentation called leading by design not by chance. And the purpose of eight-figure firm and the, and the concept of the nine principles of exponential growth is that the more intentional you are about what you do in your business, the more likely it is that that design will lead to success. And because, because a lot of people, they run their businesses without any intentionality. And you have to be intentional about your message. You have to be intentional about your brand, intentional about your marketing. You have to be intentional about the way that you uh, train people, the way you assimilate your new employee orientation, the more intentional you can get in the specifics of your business, the more likely you'll have success in your business. And so that's what the eight-figure firm concept is. Here's a challenge many people have. They don't know where to be intentional. They don't know when to be intentional. And so what, what we do is we help people identify where they need to be intentional at this moment. Recently, I was working with a client I started working with her uh, sometime about five months ago, and she wanted to focus on marketing. She was like, I have a marketing problem. 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 She kept saying, I have a marketing problem. When I looked at her lead generation, I realized she didn't have a marketing problem. She had a sales problem. And we immediately stopped worrying about the marketing. We didn't stop the marketing. We just stopped worrying about the marketing. And we started working on sales conversion. And five months later, she had tripled her business without spending a single penny on marketing. And so what I do is I help identify where people are not being intentional 
and help them be intentional when they need to be intentional. And that's what the concept of a figure firm. And it, and, it, and it all revolves around nine specific principles and 10 essentials your business should have. That's incredible. And I find myself kind of smiling internally because it's so common, you know, be owning a marketing agency. It's like, geez, we're driving a ton of traffic and ton of leads. Like what's going on here. And a lot of times <laughs> you're exactly right. It's not a marketing issue. It's a sales. We've even went to the extent of secret shopping. Our clients. Yeah. We've had to do it. And we'll have a scorecard of, of when we secret shopped them and what our experience was just to share it. And it's interesting, but there, there's so many components. If you can just fix that one element, it could be the bottleneck to, to help with your throughput, to help you grow your firm. Absolutely. You know, if you start thinking about referrals as an upsell versus additional marketing, it really changes your perspective. So like, if you only think about referral generation as a marketing tactic, then you're going to say, well, my marketing's not working. But if you look at referral generation as a, as an upsell, meaning it's part of the sales journey and the sales process, you'll realize that whatever marketing is delivering should actually deliver more through the referrals. And so I don't think people look at it like that. They go, marketing only delivered 10 and then I got five referrals. No, marketing delivered 10 and you through relationship building got five more. That was a sales. So really marketing is delivering 15. And I think we need to be we need to be honest with ourselves. You didn't just randomly get five more referrals. You got them from the 10 that marketing delivered on. Um, and I think we need to start looking at it like that as, as an upsell versus just, just a, an additional marketing tactic. I love the Weiss's reframing referrals as a part of the sales journey, but different firms deal with different case volume and size. I asked Luis if that should factor into whether they pursue a referral strategy. Here's the, to me, the, the perspective change. If I spent a million dollars in marketing and I only made a million dollars in revenue, to me, that's a win because the upsell is the referral. See, if I spend a million in marketing and I only make, make a million in revenue from that directly attributed to that marketing, but I generate three referrals from each client I got from marketing, that's the win. That's the upsell. And it doesn't really matter if it's volume or if it's, if it's, if it's a high value type of practice. If you can generate referrals from what marketing delivers, which is what I call with building, then you are going to drive depth in your organization. And so if marketing is delivering a lot of width, let's say a thousand cases a year, but you can turn that thousand into 3000 cases because 2000 are by referral. That is how you win. That's how you lower your cost of acquisition. People are always amazed when I tell them that our personal injury cost of acquisition is $1,200, but 50% just under, I won't, I'm rounding up almost 50% of our cases come through referral. Well, it's not because of just referral. It's because we have all this width that we're building. It's because we're doing SEO. It's because we're doing pay-per-click. It's because we're doing all this marketing that gives us the opportunity to actually develop more referrals. But that's the upsell. I can break even on the marketing spend as long as I develop referrals. It's such a smart concept. And it really evaluates the, the success of, of each of these channels a little bit differently because on my end, you know, we're if we're working with a client and they're doing SEO and they pay us, you know, $10,000 a month and, you know, $120,000 a year, and they only make $120,000, most attorneys, most law firms would say, oh, that's, that's complete garbage. I'm going to go and invest this money in another channel. But from basically from what I'm hearing is no, I would, you would consider that a win because then you potentially get referrals in the future. Now, obviously you want to do better than break even, 
but it wouldn't necessarily, or what I'm hearing is it wouldn't necessarily be a complete waste or a fail. Absolutely not. I, I think that it's short-sighted to view all your marketing through the, the, the concept of a direct attribution. It's very short-sighted. I, I am I am very anti-direct attribution in, in big scale marketing. Now, if you have a marketing budget of 100,000 a year, you probably can't attribute. But when you get into, into the bigger ballpark of, of you know, big law and, and, and you're spending millions of dollars a year, doing a direct attribution marketing analysis is doing a disservice to the marketing people who are actually doing a great job for you. I could unveil this. Uh, obviously, th these, are, these are trade secrets, so I can't. But if you were to look at our cost of acquisition for TV or our cost of acquisition for radio or our cost of acquisition for billboards, you would say it's a monumental failure. You would actually conclude that because how can you be paying $10,000 to acquire a case? Well, the reason is because if you take the approach that that person is going to turn into three clients, then you know you're not paying $10,000 for a case, you're paying $10,000 for three cases. That cost of acquisition may still be too high, but my point is that it's it's less than what you see on the data point. And I think we focus so much on the data point that we lose sight of the overall, the overall goal, which is to enhance our with building so that we have more people to refer to us. You know, I tell people all the time, some of these big firms, I don't consider our firm a big settlement firm. Yet last year we had nine seven-figure cases. I don't consider myself because but those cases came through referrals of people who came through radio station uh, advertisements, TV advertisements. So I don't want to be short-sighted. I want to make sure that our marketing is leading to more people because more people lead to more referrals and more referrals mean you get more seven-figure cases in the long run. And it just continues to build the brand and it just continues to compound. I, I think that's incredible. And that is definitely an amazing cost for acquisition and First of all, thank you for sharing that. That's one of the best pieces of advice I've heard on the podcast, period. And, and I don't say that lightly. I think that's just genius. So let's let's talk, you know, for eight-figure firm, you know, who's it for? Is it for only plaintiff? Is it for any any uh law firm? You know, who who's it best for? You know, the what's kind of the avatar that you're looking at that would work best with your consulting side? Interestingly, when I launched a figure firm, I thought that because I knew personal injury injury space, it would be only for personal injury attorneys. And although it is for personal injury attorneys, because I have about half of the clients are personal injury attorneys, what I've realized is the principles work in every business. I actually have helped other businesses unrelated to law using the same principles, five, six, and seven X their business in one year. And so this is a figure firm is for any lawyer who owns a law firm, not defense related because the corporate world's a little bit different, but primarily plaintiff who works, you know, B to, B to C primarily, you know, if you, if you're a family lawyer and you represent clients, if you're, if you're a, a, a nonprofit lawyer, if you're a, a, an immigration lawyer, if you're a personal injury lawyer, workers comp, that's who a figure firm is for. It's for that entrepreneur lawyer who just needs to figure out the edge and the edge for me is uh, we've been there, we've done that. We have a multi eight-figure business. Uh, eight-figure firm itself is now a multi seven-figure business. And in 18 months, we went from zero to multi seven figures. And so I, I can teach you the principles on how to scale your business as an entrepreneur. That's who it's for, is a person who wants to scale and turn their law firm into a law business. Amazing. 
Amazing. Mm-hmm. For those listening, I mean, that's, that's just tremendous. You know, a couple final questions here, Luis, and this, this has been sure. fantastic. I, t- I could talk to you forever. Uh, you know, you've read a ton of professional yeah. development books, business books. I've seen you on other YouTube videos with your stack of books in the background. <laughs> you know, so let, let's talk about, you know, I'm not going to say what's your favorite book because I got to, then you only have to give one, you know, what are, what are your top recommendations? Like what comes to mind for business books? For me, the, the best business person is a person who can control their emotions, who can control their ego, who can control their anxiety. And so I believe that any person who wants to really level up as an entrepreneur should read books that focus on those three key areas, which is controlling their inner self. Um, one of my favorites is Cy Wakeman's No Ego, which is a book that talks about subduing the ego and making sure you're constantly in the toggle up mode so that you don't believe that you're being offended by things, not letting your ego drive you. And uh, the second book that I believe that these two books combined, The Four Agreements is also a great book. One of the agreements is, is not to take offense uh, to anything. And I think that, that those two, two books have really changed the way that I, that I look at, at the world and the way that I, that I handle myself. When I'm in a scenario where I feel like my ego may be getting into play, I ask myself the question, is this ego or am I really right to feel this way? And many times what we'll find is that our ego is getting in the way of us making good decision-making processes. So uh, those are two books that I recommend, but any business leader who wants to really get to the next level should focus on controlling their anxiety, controlling their emotions, controlling their sense of stress. If you can do that, I believe you can be the most powerful person in the room and that will make a difference. People will notice that. And I think that that makes all the difference in the world. Fantastic. So, you know, one final question here, you know, kind of broad, you know, what's next for Bader Scott and eight figure firm. So Bader Scott has now signed a lease on a 50,000 square foot uh, commercial space here in Buckhead. And uh, we're so excited that it's going to fit what we anticipate to be around 325 employees by, by mid 2023. Um, It's going to have a full facility for our employees to feel like this is a great place to come to work because we wanted to make it a space that was inviting and we, as part of that, that lease signage, we will be putting our name, Bader Scott, on a high rise here in Buckhead, which is an incredible feat for us. We've, we've fought for many years to get our name on this building. And so we're really excited about that. For A-Figure Firm, we are looking to help 100 law firms develop $10 million in predictable revenue every year so that they can live the life that they want to live, not the life that they have to live. And right now, we're well on our way to getting there. Uh, we have all kinds of programs. You can find us at figurefirm.com to find out more about that. But that's what we're excited about is looking for opportunities to help more law firms develop that type of eight-figure predictable revenue. Among his many talents, Luis is an excellent teacher. What I love is how concrete his advice is. He uses marketing data to determine growth and hires accordingly. He asks owners to step back and trust those hires with everyday operation of the business. And he incorporates referrals directly into the sales process so that firm's growth is fueled by incoming cases. We can all learn a lot from Luis, but like any class, to get the most out of it, we have to do our homework. Listen back and see if you can apply any of his tips to your firm, and I think you'll be surprised by the growth you see. 
I'd like to thank Luis Scott from Bader Scott Injury Lawyers, an eight-figure firm, for sharing his story with us. And I hope you gained some valuable insights from the conversation. You've been listening to Personal Injury Mastermind. I'm Chris Dreyer. If you like this episode, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners. I'll catch you on next week's PIM with another incredible guest and all the strategies you need to master personal injury marketing.